So in the reading corner today, I have a very special guest with me. It's Peter Kalu, who is a poet, novelist, playwright, and indeed film scriptwriter too. Um, we're talking about his book, One Drop, which is the second book in an unusual trilogy because the books have all been written by different writers. The first one was published last year, written by Melvin Burgess, and it was called Three Bullets. The thing that connects these stories is that they're all set in the same world, a world that feels as though it could possibly be just around the corner, but is set uh, in the future. Now, I read um, Peter's author's note at the end, and he talks about that relationship with Tariq and Melvin. And one of the things he says is that it started from Tariq asking that big writer question, what if? So in a way, I'd like to start there, Peter, first of all, by welcoming you, but also to ask you what that what if meant, both in terms of this world that you've created, but for your story. Yes, there, there, I think we all start as writers with, with the what is when we get into uh, fiction, creating new worlds, new, exploring possibilities. And I think because it was quite a dystopian vision, the what ifs were quite um, grim, you might say. So in, in my case, it, the, the what ifs I used were, what if uh, you became illegal? What if the love you had which was deep and true, became illegal? What if the UK became a chaotic, fragmented, sectarian place on a par with Syria? Uh, what if the far right with Trumpian, Johnsonian, oops, energies, uh, and with Elon Musk's innovation uh, and inventions, seize power or partial power mm. and what if they set up camps and attempted to indoctrinate people not by the process of wearing them down uh, but by simply implanting chips sim cards into their heads and then uh, using those sim cards to rewrite people's memories and rewrite their sense of self mm. uh, if that occurred how would some resistance form uh, what would be necessary in order for people to retain their sense of identity and to retain their memories and to, in that way, uh, have sufficient strength to resist, to rebel and to fight back? And could that fight back uh, win out against this uh, hostile uh, regime that is built on hate? Uh, could, could love uh, win through? Or would the, the forces of hate be overwhelming? Mm. So that's the bleak vista. <laughs> what if? <so. laughs> what, uh, and you know, you've captured in all of your what ifs there the very big issues that uh, underpin this novel. Of course, you've got to agree to some extent to some parameters because the three of you have set your novels in this world. What were the bits that you had to? kind of stick to as a writer? Well, again, this was a, a lovely negotiation between the three of us because uh, my previous uh, 
speculative fiction novel was set maybe a thousand years from now. And so there are very, very few anchors to my imagination in, in terms of a thousand years from now. You're pretty much building an entirely new world. Whereas Melvin's practice, uh, his novels in the past have been set, I would say, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And so there is a, a very great um closeness uh, between the world that we create in that kind of near future and this world here. And so most of the negotiation consisted of Tariq and Melvin telling me that I could not do things and that this would not <laughs> exist yet. And uh, the compromise we reached was the compromise where the technology, the the, the rewrite technology, um, they agreed to allow it to happen. That was a fierce argument. Um, but the the uh, political structures, uh, the economic uh, backgrounds, um, the geography, the technology, and uh, the uh, military forces, uh, those um, environments were all quite close to what exists currently. And so you do get that uh, rather terrifying idea that this isn't that far away. <laughs> Yeah. And of course, a story is not just big ideas. It's about people and it's about characters. And at the heart of your story, two very uh, strong characters, Axe, Axel and Dune. So maybe tell us a bit about these two characters. Axe and Dune, outside of the camp, are friends, school friends who become more than that, who, who, who become partners, who, who, who stumble, if you like, into a relationship. And they um, build a world of love, of care and compassion, of jokes, fun, joking, a typical mid-teen environment uh, and, and world. And insofar as their love is not orthodox um, or their, their gender presentations are not necessarily orthodox. Uh, they do meet some hostility, but um, they're well able to cope with it and, and their love for each other takes them through. Outside of the camp, the, the, the strictures, the, the pressures that start to close in on them uh, do start to disrupt in, in some ways that relationship and they become uh, more and more fractured in, 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 in how they relate to each other. But nevertheless, they, they hold together, they hold together well. And then, of course, they're suddenly captured by the bloods, uh, the, the right-wing forces that, that are prevailing in the Britain that we uh, create and thrown into the prison camp. And at that point, their relationship undergoes its most severe test. So that, that's really where they're at. Can their love hold out? And, and, and is it strong enough? Uh, can they be strong enough for each other to withstand the, the, the attacks on their identity, on their relationship, on, 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 on their memories, on their minds? Because this camp does affect them in different ways. And the camp is called a peace camp. It's no more a peace camp than the camps in Poland were labour camps. You know, it's that same. And actually, there are lots of things that if you know about the history of those death camps, those extermination camps, there's a lot of similarity in how these camps are run. Were you drawing on that? There are many dire, grim examples of uh, this use of uh, an oppression, uh, and I'm attempting to force 
uh, a people or a, a numerous individuals to um, conform to the uh, ruling diktat. And uh, so, yeah, I was aware of those things. And I, I, I don't think I consciously attempted to model what I was doing on any one uh, form of camp. I, I was just aware of the idea of the camp and of on the idea. I guess in contemporary times, these um, the um, asylum seeker um, holding places. I think most recently they were talking about shipping people to Rwanda, and uh, mm-hmm. there are there are examples in Manchester of 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 of, 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 of um, uh, refugees, asylum seekers going for appointments and then essentially just disappearing. And so it's an extrapolation or, or, or a base point from these near examples and on the ones further back in history. You said that you started with um, a different beginning because this opens straight into the camp. How did it start before? Nikki, we'll, we'll, we'll go down the rabbit hole with, <laughs> with that one, but I will tell you, it started with the London Wind, which was, um, it was inside the camp and it was a scene. I often, the way I write often is I get key scenes. I have key moments which I know need to be in this story. And I always write those moments. I don't really care too much about the, the, the way in which the, the linearity of the novel, the way the novel's going to flow from the beginning to the end. I kind of saw that out last. But I start with what really grits me, moves me, and 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 feels poignant and and opposite. And and that was the London Wind chapter. And as the editorial process went on, this London Wind chapter moved further and further and further back. Uh, it was quite funny. And so I was writing it using a piece of software that allowed you to shuffle the chapters anyway, very quickly. And, and the idea behind that was that uh, the reader, if they used the software, wouldn't have to read the story in, in the order that the God known as the author puts them, you know, the, the, the chapters, they can shuffle it or, 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 or randomness can enter and it gets shuffled. And, and it, I was hoping that the story would work whichever way the chapters were shuffled. And the, the sort of philosophical point around that is that we don't exist in the present all the time. We exist in the future and in the past and the present. And at any one moment, we may be in all three places. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's very hard to write up in a novel. Uh, in a paper novel, you know, so digital seemed to be the better form. You mentioned the sort of technology side of things. And, you know, it occurs to me that all wars, all instances of oppression like this, often technology is being invented for that very purpose or being repurposed. But here, the technology, it doesn't seem so unbelievable. It does seem as though it could be just around the corner. There is a, um, a book that, uh, when I came across it, it's called Drone Theory. I think it's by uh, Shamayu, if I remember his name rightly. And it was a revelation, the things that drones could do and the software, the uh, AI, the artificial intelligence methods by which uh, drones were, were, were being fed data and and were being uh, empowered, if that's the right word, allowed to make decisions. And I was, I was, I was shocked and amazed. And a lot of the information around drones uh, uh, in that book I've used in one drop. Tell us a little bit more about these chips and how the drones affect them. It's a combination of technologies um, in which you've got uh, visual identification methods, you've got gate recognition methods, 
you've got um, near field sensors, which is like your um, your chip, your credit cards, or your your debit cards. Um, it, it's a combination of these information systems in terms of what it, it what the drones are looking to to hoover up, but it's also fed data, and so it uses network analysis, uh, like who meets who, where, and from that it can draw on a database and say, okay, if ninety nine times out of hundred. When a person meets another person in this kind of place carrying this kind of object with this kind of gate, the following happens. Therefore, we don't need to examine whether that following thing is going to happen this time. We can just intervene before it does happen. You know? So these 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 are almost AI decisions being made by drones, which uh, do not necessitate, if that's the right word, uh, any human intervention. But in terms of the book and what the, the drones in the book are doing, they're working on the idea that um, <clears throat> the chips in the heads of the people who are in the prison camps can be accessed by the drones and the drones feed directly into those chips m- memories, uh, ideas, which are the ideas of the ruling powers, the people who control those drones. And at the same time, those uh, drones also in, uh, via the chip, inhibit other memories, which may counter the memories that they want to implant. So it's a complex process. Um, and the theory around the uh, way in which this um, um, rewriting is combated is that the memories which are have the most emotion attached to them are the memories are the memories which get most deeply embedded in human beings uh, memory systems and so they're the hardest to erase and also that memory uh, is held not just by one individual but the the sense of self that an individual has is comprised not just of their own memories of their self but of other people's memories of them that idea, and oh, this is another deep dive, is something that I picked up from um, Adriana Cavarero, uh, an Italian philosopher. And who we are, Shiaku's, is very much a matter of what stories are told about us. And this is why there is so much storifying in the novel, that the story, these memories and the stories told about memories are not just a, a, a nice way of recalling the past, they're actually a, a, a means by which an identity can be fixed, can be maintained, and, and the identity can resist the imposition of anything from the drones, any new uh, other identity. Which brings us to the idea of resistance, because uh, resistance can happen in a number of ways, one of which is through the memories. We are our memories. That's what you've just said. That's a quote uh, from the book. It can come from trying to get uh, counter technology so that you can destroy the technology that's there or good old fashioned catapulting it down. You know, that kind of physical uh, resistance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's all three of those things going on in this story. I think in the 60s, there was the consciousness raising movement in which, uh, you know, people would sit together and tell their stories. And I, I always felt that the power of that was phenomenal and it's something that we we maybe we neglect a little nowadays in in this sort of social media world but that idea of of of, of coming together and building identity it, it sits in some of the work of Alice Walker and of Tony Morrison 
as well, I think. And it's it's an important part of maybe uh, what was the Black Consciousness Movement and the Black Power Movement and you know, the, the retaining a sense of self that is not the sense that being imposed upon us by the state. And, and, and yeah, that's always been part of, I think, that cultural uh, efforts. By some of the references that you make early on to key people, so they're, they're the in people and the out people. Marilyn Monroe is there as a kind of former civil rights um, supporter. Um, and you also mention Audre Lord, who was an amazing activist uh, that I think perhaps some readers won't have heard about. Well, Audrey Lord's uh, works and, and her voice uh, and her, the idea of you know, the master tools will not uh, dismantle the master's house. Many of the her, her thoughts uh, are relevant today, important today, and some of these uh, this thinking is seeded through Wanderer, not in a didactic, heavy way. You know, you might pick them up, you might not, um, and of course, in in the editorial process, um, those who may not recognise the contributions of of these characters or these people um, would query them. So I do remember specifically that there was a small skirmish around Marilyn Monroe, whether to include her. You know, he's like, well, why have you put her in that? And I was like, well, look at her history, look what she did. You know, forget the movies. Look what she did. Look how she stood up with Ella Fitzgerald when Ella Fitzgerald was was, was under attack and discriminated against. You know, Marilyn Monroe, she had a backbone. She was a fighter. And, you know, that is the history of Marilyn Monroe that matters to the black community. But I do I do like when I when I write to plant things and, and for people to if they don't get it, it's like to just Google it. It's, it's only two minutes away nowadays. You, know, you don't have to go off to a big library like I did when I was a kid and find the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it, it's a journey of discovery. The novel's a journey of discovery. And the, there are many, many instances where there are there are echoes of, of voices. And I'm guessing Elizabeth X must be a nod to Malcolm X. Yes, yes, that's true. Well, there's, there, there is a the idea of X is, of course, of, of an identity erased, and so Malcolm X, uh, you know, his, his point, as I understand it, was that owing to slavery, one of the, the things that slavery did was suppress, erase uh, historical connections, historical identities, and so that X stands for everything that is erased. So it, it has a resonance with with Malcolm X, and it, and yeah, the the the. the Elizabeth X takes on that name, not just for the reference with Malcolm X, but for what Malcolm X was saying in turn around uh, how our identities have been erased. We have to talk about One Drop, which is, after all, the title of the book, the mantra that they are encouraged to repeat. I have one drop of white blood in my veins, and that is the drop I worship. The Axe's mother tries to encourage him to be able to repeat, not because she wants him to repeat it, but because she feels it will save his life. And that will chime with anybody who has brought up, uh, you know, young black men in areas where they get very negative attention, training children to behave in certain ways and to erase their identity in order not to well, well, to survive. Yeah, yeah, I, I do remember there was an article by Gary Young, uh, the journalist and now professor, um, who 
he wrote about how he's, I don't know, he's a very young child, five, six-year-old child in America. Uh, he'd walked him and, and, and things had happened as he'd been walking with the child. And the child had asked the dad to go a different way this time. And Gary Young was shocked that even at that young age, our behaviours, the way in which we navigate the world is being influenced by that acknowledgement, that perception of that, that racism is, 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 is a force that we're going to have to deal with. It's an awful thing. I think just recently with my daughter and she, she was doing a sketch. We were fooling around as usual, but somehow the, the sketch turned into her holding a gun. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're in a public place. <laughs> we are not allowed to hold anything that looks like that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You're the kids, cat, but not you, you know. <laughs> and yeah, it's a it's a shocking thing to have to start censoring and 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 suggesting people modify their behaviour because of the blackness, uh, because of their skin colour, and and the way in which police can react to that presence of of of, of, of skin colour plus whatever the other factor is. So yeah, it's um, these talks that, that that parents give. Yeah, they're 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 poignant and kind of abrasive of 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 our sense that everything is fine, everything's all right. And what I was trying to do in the early parts of the novel, in in, in those parts which are pre-camp, is give a sense of that incipient danger, of that creeping danger, and the modifications that happen slowly, slowly, slowly. Yes, definitely. And in fact, I think it's. Axel's or Axel's father that says a fish does not know the meaning of water, which is really what you're describing for us there, that when you're in it, you don't see it, you don't feel it. it it's that sort of um, creeping up on you idea. But it's not an entirely bleak novel because of the love that underpins it. And I wondered whether now would be a really good time for you to read a little bit to us. Yes, absolutely. The, the the counterweight to the bleak scenarios is the love story and is the great love and, 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 and my attempt to describe the love and the care, the relationship that Axel and June have and how love in the cliche, you know, can see us through so many things. And uh, that's that was the hope that's in the novel. The hope is represented by the love that Axel and June share. And so, yes, let me read from The Wagon. And it's, it's a scene pre the camp. The Wagon. We left the car in the mud patch of a tractor turning point. Mum took out a large canvas bag and veered west into a field of baled straw that had a slight incline and became a conifer forest. Dad took us due east across the same field and kept us going, telling us not to turn around. Soon we were among tree trunks and dragonflies, though the stream running through the trees where dark pools held shoals of finger-length silverfish. Small black biting flies hovered above the stream water. We kept on, and as the trail got rockier, Dad started huffing with the cool box, but would not let us help him. We made it past the last tree line of the woods and into a clearing that was almost lawn. Dad got the cool box opened. It was maybe a fake picnic, but there was no reason not to enjoy it. A fish does not know the meaning of water, Dad began in his sage-on-the-mountain tone as the lid of the cool box hinged back. The air was dry, with flecks of hay occasionally flicking across. Is that right? June said, grabbing a chicken drumstick. Yes, said Dad. Think about it. Being a fish, 
being always in water, a fish has no awareness of not water to compare with the state of being in water. Carry on, said June, then took another piece of chicken. June was an Olympic eater and you had to be fast around them. Dad hesitated, but found his mojo. My point is, we are sometimes immersed in things and have no awareness we are immersed in them. Like now, with the rise of fascism. I got attacked last week, said June. What happened, said Mum. She'd rejoined us, minus the canvas bag. Nothing, the usual. Some randoms threw a punch at me. I hit them and back and ran. Was it Bloods, Mum pressed? Yeah, Bloods cadets. You know your fam to us, June said Dad. Are you adopting me? Might as well, I joked. Seeing as you spend most of the time around ours. And June is welcome, said Dad. I trust them with my life. June nodded. Their eyes flicked at the chicken Dad was holding. Makes you farm, right? Said Dad, biting on the last spicy chicken wing. Now, I might just lie back, close my eyes and bathe in this sunlight like a fish in water. Dad rested his head on Mum's stomach. You too. Don't wander off, said Mum. Mum, appreciate nature. Look at these beautiful fields yonder. Yonder? I quizzed. Yes, yonder, confirmed Mum. She was a trained librarian. She knew these kinds of words. She wagged a finger vaguely at the dark greenery around us. Dad had this amazing ability to go to sleep at the drop of a chewed chicken bone, and he was soon snoring. Mum's eyelid fell too. June edged closer. Me and June watched the countryside around us for about three seconds. Then it was clear that the open air and sun and stuff had got June frisky. They began rubbing me. This was nuts. I trapped their hands. June turned onto the chest. Your dad's getting old, they said. See how he struggled with the cool box? He's not old. He's unfit. All the days he spends staring at screens. What about me? Am I fit? June said. I grinned into the grass. This was June all over, fishing for compliments. Good try, I said. But this conversation has now ended. The sky was sheer silk blue. The fields were a patchwork of colours in pastel tones of brown and green and yellow, ruffling from the horizon towards us, all the way up to the broad, grey zip fastener of the road. Then after that, larger and larger patches of flowing green fields, right up to where my head was now resting on June's softly rising and falling stomach, as my hand kept theirs wandering. I had my eyes half closed, so my eyelashes played with the sun's rays. When I heard this distant rumbling sound, I looked up. It was coming from the road. The sight confused me. I sat up to see it clearer. I thought it was scarecrows at first, stacked vertically in the back of one of those farmer's wagons with the steel slotted upper bodies that are towed by tractors. But as I looked more closely, I saw it was human beings, not scarecrows. Every one of them dark-skinned, tall, nappy-headed, and dressed in rough clothes. They were stood up in the wagon, being jolted and jostled as it towed along the road at some speed by a camouflage-coloured Land Rover. I called out, waving to them. I was far enough away that they might not see me or hear me, but I thought at least one of them might. None waved back or even lifted their hands as they went past. I nudged June and they woke, saw what I saw. I shouted again, more urgently at them. Dad stirred, mumbling, what are you shouting about? The wagon! There were all these people, black people, crammed into the back like chickens in a cage, I said to him. They were ghost people, Dad. They didn't shout or move. They looked like they were tied up and they had dead eyes. Where? It's gone now. Dead eyes? How could you see their eyes from here? I don't know, Dad. They were scary. You sure? Maybe you were dreaming. Yes, I'm sure. Dude, you black people in the back of a wagon, tied up. I saw it too, June confirmed. Mom's third now. 
We need to get back, phone this in. I've heard reports, it's the immigrant lock campaign. They had vans out saying they were going to round people up, hiding in the countryside that didn't have the right papers. By the time we were back on the estate, it was dark. Mum was on the phone for ages. Then she came down and wedged me between her knees and began oiling and cornrowing my hair without even asking. A news flash came up on the TV. Another big bomb had gone off, this time in Leeds. Wow. So, Peter, I know that um, your daughter has been a bit involved in this story as well. Uh, I'd love to know a little bit more about the music that connects with the piece that you've just read to us. Yes, it, it came about quite by serendipity. Uh, I, I think the, my daughter's always sung. She picked up guitar and uh, started playing piano and stuff. And so during lockdown, we started to write songs together. And I was working on One Drop during that time too. So the song started to get incorporated into the novel or the novel text became the sort of grist for, for songs. And eventually uh, we, we composed two or three songs and uh, she's uh, started to record them and she performed one of the songs, uh, which I call Heavenly Sky. She calls The Last Sky at a recent launch in uh, Jam Street in Manchester. Wonderful. Actually, I should just say that we get the sort of glimmer of the sky in the episode that you've just read, you know, the reference to the blue sky, which is obviously used ironically in other places in the novel uh, too. You know, thank you so much for coming into the reading corner and telling us more about One Drop. I feel we scraped the surface of something very deep. You've got so much to say and maybe we'll be able to chat again. (laughs) I'd love that. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Anderson Press. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.